Hey guys, welcome to the weekly podcast of Encounter Church, Sedalia, Missouri. It's our prayer that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your life. If you want more information about Encounter Church, please go to our website, EncounterChurch.ag. Thanks again. Enjoy the message. Now, how many of you are ready for the message? Amen, amen. I don't know about you, but this series has really kind of slapped me upside the head about 45 times, and it's, it's tripped me up. It's caused me to really process um, what I've done for the last 45 years as a follower of God. I guess about 40, 41 years. I'm 45, I got saved when I was about four. So yeah, about 41 years. Those first few years were rough. Can I just tell you, I spent nine months um, in captivity, but God released me. Um, some of you will catch that later. We're in a series right now that we're simply calling Be the Church. We're, my wife is like shaking her head down here. Um, we're in a series that we're calling Be the Church, and we're really talking about what does it mean to be and do what God has called us to be and to do. We as a church, we are challenging ourselves to move beyond just attending on a Sunday morning. Did you know that, that the church was never meant just to be a place to hang out and congregate on a Sunday morning? <laughs> Mind-blowing. But for generation after generation, that's what we, the American culture, have done. We, we've created this mindset that all we need to do, if we're really a Christian, if we're really a, a follower of God, then all we need to do is, is come into a building that we call a church on a Sunday morning and, and hang out with other Christians and everything will be okay. But the more that I read the Word of God, the more that I find out we've missed the mark. We, we've missed the opportunity to do and be all that God has created us to be. I've challenged you over and over and over and over again in this series, and hopefully you can quote it by this point, but our purpose and our mission as a church, and let me remind you, Churches not just corporately, but churches personally. We are the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are individually the church. So we, our purpose, our mission, our goal as a church is to accomplish and even complete the mission that Jesus began here on earth. Now, I truly hope that by this point of the series, that the very word of God, the foundation that we've built upon, that you're allowing it to sink into your heart. And that we as a church, we must learn that we aren't just to be a hearer of God's word. We're really good at that, right? We're not just to be a hearer of God's word, but we are to be a doer of of God's word because for too many years the church corporately and even the church personally has been satisfied with just being a hearer and in turn we have turned a deaf ear to our world and to our culture and because of that society is in major disarray society is spiraling downward at a rapid 
pace. But what if, what if, just for a moment, let's think outside the box. What if the church (laughs) truly began to function as the church? Because what I've learned over the 45 years of life is that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And right now in our culture, the squeaky wheel is getting the oil. But what if the Christian, what if the church began to be the squeaky wheel? In the New Testament church, the early church, we see that they were going through communities and going through towns. And the Bible says they were turning the world and the community upside down for God. Wouldn't it be awesome if people in our community said, I don't know what's happening, but that encounter church is turning our community upside down. I would love for the headline on the front page of the Sedalia Democrat, Encounter Church turns community upside down. Not so that we can go, whoa, look at us, but so we can go, wow, look at him. It's time for the church to truly be the church. It's time for us to step up and step out and be what God has called us to be. But I'm happy to tell you that this body of believers is doing just that. Thursday night, we had seven Family Fest hotspots. See, if my wife wouldn't have pointed that out, you wouldn't have caught it. Math is hard. Let me start to try that again. Thursday nights, we had seven. <laughs> Getting fancy on you now. Seven hot spots all around our community. If you're if you're checking things out this morning, you don't know what that is. That means that in seven different locations around our community, we set up little small carnivals where we had games and we had gave out free hot dogs and hot chocolate. And one of my, I heard, even made chili for the people that came by. Overachiever right there. We reached between 900 and 1,000 people Thursday nights. Yeah. That's not including those that during the day when we went downtown, and I can safely say that it was well over a thousand people downtown Sedalia Thursday afternoon. So we could easily say upwards of 2,000 people, we had the opportunity to speak into their lives. Isn't that awesome? This church, Encounter Church, is beginning to understand what it means to function as the church that God has created us to be. I'm pleased to say that we're on the right track. I want to share a story with you uh, this morning. Actually, we're going to end up telling a couple stories as we go. But over the last several weeks, I have repeatedly um, shared with you the great commandment. Do you remember what that is? Jesus said that the greatest commandment ever is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I quote that section of scripture quite often because it's what the foundation, it's what we build everything that we do upon. 
if we aren't grasping the idea of loving God with all that's in us and loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're missing the point. But this morning, I want to look at it in its context, looking at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, one day an expert, hold on to that word, an expert, that's a person that claims to, to know all the details. They seem to be more knowledgeable than anyone else around regarding the information. They're the expert in the religious law, stood up and test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he knew the words, right? Jesus replies, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify, look at your neighbor and say justify, he wanted to justify his actions. Have you ever been guilty of justifying your actions? No, not you. No, he wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my, my neighbor? You see, this man trying to justify his inaction by excusing himself due to a, a lack of knowledge, even though he was the expert, he was excusing himself because of a, a lack of knowledge. And, and I wonder, are, sometimes, are we guilty of much the same? So I ask you, who is your neighbor? Have you ever tried to justify your actions or your inactions to God? God, can you really define those terms for me? I mean, God's, God's directing you to do something. God's leading you to do something. But for some reason or another, you're trying to justify the behavior. So you're trying to get clarity. God, would you define that? Would you explain that in a little more detail? God, would you help me to know who exactly are my neighbors? I mean, really, I don't know who they are. So if Jesus were standing in front of you, this morning, and he caught eye contact one-on-one -on -one with you, and he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Who would he be talking about? Now, for some of you right now, a name came to mind. You thought of that co-worker, you thought of that clerk over at Walmart, you thought of that person at the donut shop, somebody just came to your mind. When I said, who's your neighbor, suddenly somebody was visualized in your mind. This lawyer in our text asked himself that very same question. Who's my neighbor? Now, we've spent several weeks talking about what we need to do and how we go about responding so we have the what and the how but is it enough to know how we should act if we fail to know who we are supposed to attribute these behaviors toward i don't think so you see james chapter 2 verse 17 says this so you see faith by itself isn't enough 
Say it's not enough. Faith by itself isn't enough. Just having the head knowledge alone is not enough. Just being the expert is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Look at that. So, looking at this scripture and holding on to this text, would you say this morning that because of the action that you have put forth as a Christian, that there is evidence that you have faith? Or is your faith simply dead? Let me ask that question again. Would you say this morning that because of the action that you have put forth as a Christian, is there evidence that you have faith? Or is your faith simply dead? You see, the knowledge of how to be the church is not enough unless it moves us into action. We're seven weeks into this series, folks. Seven weeks into defining what does it mean to be the church. Pastor Andy and I were talking about this week. I feel that we have tackled this from every single angle of of approach, however we can come to this idea. Why? Because it's so vitally important. Because if we don't learn to respond and truly be the church, our faith is dead. It's pointless. So where do we even start? Well, a great place to look is the challenge that Jesus set on the early church. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a section of scripture that oftentimes, as the assumers of God are a, a Pentecostal bunch, we use this scripture and it says, let me read it to you. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, we're going to get to the rest of it in just a moment. Oftentimes, we we focus in on this section. We love the idea of the power. We love the idea of this special anointing. We love the idea that God pours something upon us. You'll receive power, dunamis power, dynamite power, explosive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But then we stop right there because, well, we got the power. We sing songs about it, right? There is power, power, wonder-working power. Some of you are like, I don't even know that song. I think there's one in the 80s. We've got the power in the name of Jesus. I feel like when we're in high school, we go, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? I feel like as a church, we want to do that chance. Because we love the idea of the power, but what we miss out on, what we forget about is, why do we have the power? Look at it. You receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And here's the part that I want to focus on today. And you will be my witnesses. We talked about that last Sunday. A witness is somebody that has observed or watched something occur. They have knowledge of something. 
You'll be witnesses. We have knowledge that Jesus saves. We've, we've personally experienced it. Be witnesses telling people about me or Jesus everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does he mean by Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? What does that mean for us? Because I don't know about you, I, I haven't been to Jerusalem, I haven't been to Judea or Samaria, and really the ends of the earth kind of ends in Missouri, What does that mean? Well, I believe he's referring to every person we come in contact with. You see, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth, we have a personal contact. That's our Jerusalem. That's those right around you. Your community, that's your Judea. Beyond the borders, that's the outcasts. That's your Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's everywhere and all people. So I ask you, who are your neighbors? Have you given that much thought? Some of you were hoping that I would bypass that and keep pushing forward this morning, but we've got to understand who our neighbors are. See, last week, I went over a series of steps to open up opportunities for you to be used by God. I would encourage you, I would challenge you, go back and look at that list again, and then begin to apply it to the people or the individuals in your life. Let me ask this, why do we need to identify them? Why do we need to take the time to identify who our neighbors are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why do we need to identify who they are? Simply put, because people matter to God. The reason that I need to take the time, the reason that you need to take the time to identify those people is because they matter to God. But I know what you're thinking. Well, pastor, we already know that. Move on to the next point. See, those of us that have been around church very long, we understand this fact. The problem is we ignore it in our daily lives. It's one thing to agree with something, it's quite another thing to actually own it or personalize it in your life. We agree with the fact that people matter to God. After all, God sent Jesus to die on a cross. Why? Because for God so loved the world, people matter to God. We understand it on the surface. But, we've allowed, but have we allowed it to penetrate who we really are? Have we allowed it to alter our approach to the world? I want to take the time this morning to look at two groups of neighbors that are readily accessible, but often overlooked. Again, two groups of, of people, two sets of neighbors that are readily accessible. They are at your arm's reach, yet oftentimes they are overlooked. Remember, Jesus told us to go into Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm not going to talk about the ends of the earth today. That's missions. 
We talk about missions regularly. We heard the highlight video a few moments ago. We'll talk about missions in a few weeks. But today, I want to talk about your Jerusalem, your Judea, and your Samaria. Where can you find these neighbors? Are you ready to discover where your neighbors are? Number one, neighbor number one, those located in your home. Those located in your home. That's your Jerusalem. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Every time I read this scripture, my heart sinks. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith, such people are worse than unbelievers. Wow. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Where does your neighborhood begin? In your home, in your house, with your family members. And here it says that if we fail to take care of those, if we fail to invest in those even in our house, we have denied the faith. We're worse than the unbelievers. Our neighbors begin at home behind the closed doors of our house. So I ask you, are you really being a neighbor to your family? You know, your, your son and your daughter, your mom and your dad and your grandma and your, your grandpa. Look what Proverbs says. There are six things, there's that number, there are six things the Lord hates. No, seven he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies. Pause. So far we're there, right? I mean, we are so on board with these first six. We're like, man, why would you even live that way? Why would you even kill the innocent? Why would you plot to do evil? Why would you race to do wrong? Why would you talk falsely about somebody? All these things, we're pouring out lies. Don't even do that. We're really, really understand those are bad. But then there's a seventh. Solomon says, hold on, guys, hold on. A person who sows discord in the family. You see, at first, he said there are six things the Lord hates because he's got these six things in his mind. And then suddenly he thought, oh, those that sow discord in the family. Let, let me rephrase this. There aren't just six things that God hates. There's seven that he detests. We as parents, we are responsible for the children that God has blessed us with. Mom, dad, take serious this responsibility. Are we doing all we can to encourage them, to help them, to promote them, to, to mold them and form them and design them? The Bible says that, that we are to train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart. Let me just pause a second. That's a proverb, not a promise. Okay, so, so it, it's saying you really need to do this. 
are we pouring out blessings and hope? Are we helping our children or are we pouring curses upon their life? We always tell our kids, well, guys, if you're going to borrow something, make sure you give it back in, in better condition, as good a condition or better than when you borrowed it, right? Has anyone ever said that to your kids? Make sure that if you borrow it, make sure it's, I mean, if you break it, you need to replace that. Or if it's, you know, you need to make sure it's as, as good or better when you give it back. Clean it up if you need to clean it up. Did you know that your kids are on loan to you from God? How are you going to give them back to him? Think about that for a moment. Your neighborhood begins in your home. Students, how are you treating your mom and dad? Are you representing God? Are you being a reflection of Jesus Christ in your response to mom and dad? What about your grandma and grandpa? See, if we don't work to enrich those in our household, Solomon says that God detests our behavior. If we're sowing discord in the home, God not only hates, but he detests our behavior. So I ask you, do your neighbors in your home know that you love them? Unfortunately, I believe there are families that profess, profess to be a family, but deep down they're working against one another on a daily basis. It's time for us to be the church, and that begins in the home. Neighbor number two, those located in your community, Judea and Samaria. I was conversing with somebody last night. I wasn't necessarily going to share this, but I'm going to, because if one person makes a comment, then surely somebody else has had the same thought. And they said, well, I don't, I don't really agree with doing these hotspot things. I don't think it's what we should have done. Because I don't think we're supposed to go into the community and coerce people and persuade people. And my response is, really? I don't know what Bible you're reading, but it's not the one I'm reading. Because here's what the Bible says. The master said to the servant, go out that means leave these walls, go to the roads and the country lanes. We set up our hotspot in the road. We live in a little short three-house dead-end street. We literally checked with our neighbors, and we closed our dead-end street and set up our hotspot in the streets. So go to the roads and the country lanes and urge them. Another translation says compel them, the people there to come so my house will be full. See, we as a church, we've got to understand that we can't just sit in here and go, well, I hope they show up. It sure be good for them if they came into the house of God. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. If we don't go to them, somebody's going to. Are you grabbing a hold of this today? Go out. 
Go to the roads and the lanes and urge them. Man, that shows the importance. We are to be, we are to go to our community and make the impact for the kingdom of God. So let's divide our community up a little bit. I'm going to give you three ways that we divide our community. Number one, your circle of influence. Because if I just said, go to your community, for some of you, that would be overwhelming. We live in a town of 21,000 and I think currently 787, something like that. That's kind of overwhelming. Again, we reach a, a, a range of seven different counties, so a tune of 20,000 people. That's overwhelming to go, man, I've got to go out into the country lanes and to the roads and reach 200,000 people. I don't know about you, but that overwhelms my mind. So let's break this thing down just a little bit. The very first category that I want us to process is your circle of influence. These are your close-knit people. These are the ones that, that you hang with. These are the ones that you spend time with. It includes your family, your friends, potentially your co-workers. Let me ask you, which of those do not know Christ? I would venture to say that there are some in your circle of influence that don't know Jesus personally. If there's not, you need to broaden your circle a bit. Which of them don't attend church? We've got invite cards. It's real, real simple to invite them. Is there something that they're going through that, that you could take the time to, to speak the, the word of God into their life? See, the Bible says that the things that you're going through, God's going to walk with you through that, but then he's going to use you on the backside to walk with somebody else. Why? So that you can be the hands and feet and the voice of Jesus to them. Maybe, just maybe, they haven't taken the time to get to know him. They don't know who he is. Well, pastor, we live in the Bible Belt. Everybody around here knows who Jesus is. No, they know who Jesus is, but they don't know Jesus. By the way, they're spelt the same. I've told this before, but I used to be a junior high and high school choir teacher, and I remember one year, uh, again, some of you have heard this, but man, it's so, it's so revealing. Uh, one year we were working on some Christmas music, and one of my seventh grade boys in a town of 3,704, and that's counting everybody's dog and pet animals, you know, he's, um, he, he, he raised his hand, and he said, Mr. Gray, what does Jesus in the manger have to do with Christmas? And I thought, we're in the Bible Belt. I'm in a small town. There's a church on every corner. How does he not know about Jesus? Church, there are people that you come in contact with every single day that know nothing of the hope of Jesus Christ. They may have heard his name. They may know, maybe that's what the church talks about, but they don't know what he's done for them. 
They don't know the price that he paid on the cross of Calvary. They don't know that he's willing to give his all for them despite how many times they've messed up. He still loves them. His love never fails, but his mercies are new every day. They don't know that he desires to be a part of their life. They don't know that he has a plan and a purpose for the future. Yet maybe, just maybe, you can speak that hope into their life. Maybe, just maybe, you can invest in that circle of influence. Maybe you can go into your Judea and your Samaria and you can share the good news. You could be the church. See, the second is your acquaintances. You've got your circle of influence, those that you hang out with regularly, but what about your acquaintances? These are the people that you see on a regular basis, but you haven't yet formed a relationship with. You know, the lady at the bank, the teller at the bank, that she knows your name when you walk up. She goes, oh, Jimmy, good to see you today. But you have no clue what her name is. That person that you run into in the donut shop every Saturday morning as you're eating your glazed donuts. The person that's three doors down from you at work, you see them every day, you pass them, but you haven't yet got to know them. Your acquaintances. Could it be that that God is setting up an opportunity for you? Could it be that there's a reason why every time you get to the bank and all the tellers have somebody in front, that one person opens up for you? Could it be that God has a plan for you to speak into their life? I believe so. See, you've got your circle of influence. You've got your acquaintances. And the third is those that you don't, those that you don't know yet. Those you don't know yet. This is a guy that you're in line with at Walmart. The person that you sit down beside in the airplane. That new person at work, that waitress at the restaurant that's had a really rough day. But I can hear some of your arguments this morning. You're still going back to the mindset of this lawyer. You're trying to... Uh, justify you're attempting to justify your actions or your lack thereof and you say well i'm just not really qualified for this i'm really not the right person to do this i don't have all of the answers i'm not really sure what i should say i'm not i really don't even know where to start have you ever had those thoughts Listen to what Paul had to say in the book of Ephesians. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasure available to them in Christ. I was chosen. We talked about that last week. Every one of us have been chosen God has called every one of us. If you've given your life to Christ, if you've surrendered yourself to him, then you have been chosen. But maybe you feel like, Paul, I am the least of everyone. I'm not even worthy at all. I'm not qualified. I'm not the right person. I'm not sure. But what I want you to understand is God called you to be the church. He's chosen you not to be perfect, 
He didn't choose you because you were highly qualified. He chose you because you're His. He's called you to go, to reach the lost, the dying in this world, to bring them to His house, to go to the roads and the countrysides and compel them, urge them to come. Some of you are struggling this morning to discover who your neighbors are. On your outline today, there should be some blanks. It says, who are your neighbors? Who are your neighbors? I want to challenge you, maybe right now, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, I want you to spend some time, and I want you to identify five. Five neighbors that you can start investing in. For you, maybe, it, it, maybe it's your child. Maybe you haven't taken the time to really speak into their life. Maybe you haven't really challenged them. Maybe you haven't really impressed the Word of God upon their life. Maybe it's that co-worker that you sit with at lunch every day or at break time and, and you're hanging out together. Who are the five people that God wants you to speak to? I want to read one more little story and then we're going to move. We've just talked about the great commandments ended in verse 29. If you go to the next verse, Luke chapter 10, verse 30, it tells a story of the Good Samaritan. Some of you may have heard this story before, but it says Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip to Jerusalem, to Jer Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. Whew, good, right? A priest came along. A godly man came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. What? A temple assistant. Okay, the priest was busy, but the temple assistant is coming. We're going to be good. He walked over. He looked at the man lying there but he also passed to the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. He saw the man. He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him, um, and took him to the inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now, let me say on the onset of this, before we really dive into the scripture, you have a choice today. You have a choice of which of these characters that you want to relate with. The priest, the temple guard, or the despised Samaritan. No one's going to force you one way or the other. But what I want you to look at is this. Are we willing to be the church? Now, I don't have time. I've got just a few moments left. I don't have time to process through every one of the characters, the, the priests, the, the temple guard. But I, what I do want to focus in on is the Good Samaritan. Three things that I see occurring with the Good Samaritan. Number one, he found opportunities in his daily life. 
this good Samaritan, the Bible says that, that he looked upon the man. And the, the despised Samaritan came along and he saw the man. Many people that day were set out for their day. Many people probably saw this man in the, in the ditch line. He had been beaten. He was stripped. He was naked. He was half dead. I, I would venture to say more than just these three, but these are the three that we see. Numerous people walked by and they all had the same opportunity, yet the outcome was quite different for each. The despised Samaritan came along and he saw the, this man. It appears to me that the Samaritan was not just going through the motions of life, but he was looking for opportunities to invest in the lives around him. He not only saw the man, but number two, he chose to see through the eyes of God. Look at this. When he saw the man, he felt what? Compassion for him. Who is the person in your life? Maybe it's not a close friend. You see, this despised Samaritan didn't know this other man. Who is the person in your life? Maybe the clerk at break time or the teller at the bank, the person in the break room, the neighbor that is distant. Who is that person that God is calling you to invest in today or this week or even this month? Who is the person that, that needs you to step in and help to mend the brokenness in their life? Maybe they're broken physically or emotionally, mentally or just financially. See, seeing them is not enough. Are you moved with compassion? And then there's a third step. He chose to act upon the opportunities presented to him. He looked for the opportunity, he saw through God's eyes, and now he's choosing to act upon those opportunities. This is probably the most difficult of the steps. There are some of you in the room today that you would rather avoid any and all contact with humankind. You were so overjoyed when Walmart set up all of these self-checkout things. Now you have more opportunity to avoid people and check out by yourself and leave the building. Right? We look for the out. You pay at the pump. You go to the ATM. You try at all costs to avoid people. Why? Because it makes you uncomfortable to talk to people. But here's what I've discovered. God is not nearly as concerned with your comfort as he is with your obedience. God's not nearly concerned with you being comfortable. The despised Samaritan, I would venture to say, he wasn't super comfortable approaching a naked, beaten up guy. Right? But he looked for the opportunity. He embraced the opportunity. And how did Jesus respond at the end? Now, which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do what? The same. Go and do the same. It's time to not just go to church. It's time to be the church. It's time to go and do the same.
I challenge you today. If I can get some musicians. Begin, begin to look for your neighbors. Begin to look for opportunities. Begin to look for that moment, that situation where God wants to use you. Begin to be the church.